Welcome to this episode of Teaching at the Top, Black Men in Academia. In this podcast, we interview different men on their journeys of into research to inspire the next generation of Black young men to consider research as a career. In this episode, we are honoured and delighted to have Professor Jarvis Givens, all the way from Boston, Massachusetts, and Harvard um, Graduate School. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, doing well. Good to be with you here today, um, virtually, uh, and looking forward to the conversation. Yes, um, so I guess, you know, for everyone um, on the call who may not know you or who have not, who have not encountered your research, would you be happy to kind of give them a bit of a background to, you know, your, your, your research and what you do? Absolutely. Yeah, so um, I am an interdisciplinary historian. Uh, I was actually, I received my PhD in African-American studies from UC Berkeley. And um, the kind of focus of my research and teaching is the history of African-American education and also, you know, education in the African diaspora as well. Um, but my primary area is looking at the history of Black um, people pursuing education um, and also their experiences of educational domination in the context of the U.S., both during the slavery, during the period of enslavement, but also up and through the period that many might be familiar with and understand as the period of Jim Crow. So up and through the, um, the you know, up and through uh, the, the 20th century, uh, halfway through the 20th century. And so the first book, this first book that I just published is looking at the subversive practices of teaching. Yeah, oh, there you go. You got your got your copy there. Yeah, but looking at the kind of subversive educational traditions um, and really trying to recuperate the legacy of Black people um, pursuing meaningful education despite the you know very intense constraints that they experienced in the context of formal schooling but also in terms of the kind of just broader educational landscape in the US. Um, and that's, that, that's, that's really where, um, that's a kind of a big high level kind of perspective of what the work is doing, um, but, and, and what my interest uh, is in terms of my research and my teaching. Yeah, brilliant, thank you for that. Um, we're gonna definitely get into some of that today. But I guess you know, for for you know, for 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 the younger listeners, um, some who are not on this call, but you know, who will hopefully be listening to the uh, to the Spotify afterwards, kind of break it down. What was the journey? Were you always academic? Were um, I know you? I know you've said that you had black teachers, but you know, what was your? Were you were you always kind of thinking, hmm, one day I'm going to end up at Harvard and I'm going to specifically focus on um, black education and, and, and black history? Yeah, no, that, that wasn't uh, my plan at all. It's something that I kind of stumbled, that I, you know, kind of fell into in some ways. Um, you know, I'm the first person in my family to, I was, I'm a first generation high school graduate <laughs> um, from my family. Neither one of my parents completed high school. Um, I'm from uh, Southern California, so Compton, California which I understand is a city that also, you know, that has a reputation that uh, precedes it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so going to college, I was just kind of figuring things out on my own, but I really have, I've always, you know, been lucky to have very supportive teachers and the overwhelming majority of my teachers that my entire life were black educators who were um, very just kind of committed to us as students and committed to a larger vision of, um, 
what education could mean in our life beyond the kind of procedural aspects that you know most people think of in terms of you know curriculum and, and you know, standardized testing and things like that. My education, I feel like, was always something that had to do with the kind of uh, broad uh, range of experiences that I was encountering in the world um, in terms of my family and the community that I was in. And all of that stuff came into the classroom and shaped um, the way the teachers that I had approached um, engaging us. And I say that to say when I got to college at UC Berkeley, you know, a, a university that had at the time is in, I got to UC Berkeley in 2006. Um, and there was, you know, 3.25% of the student population were black or Af and African-American, right? <laughs> um, and obviously we know this is at the time, and you know, this is the national population of black folks always was somewhere around kind of 13%. So this is very far below the kind of national, um, standard in terms of, it was a very low representation of black students at UC Berkeley. Um, and, you know, during my time there, I, um, you know, I thought I was gonna go and I was a business major and I thought I was gonna go to law school after completing my business degree. But I took some African-American studies classes when I was in um, undergrad and, you know, I had in those classes, I felt like is where I developed the most as a thinker, as a critical thinker, um, and where I learned about my, not just about myself, but how I, you know, my own experiences and my own life coming from, you know, uh, Compton, California, from a family who didn't really have access to higher education. Those classes helped me understand more about the kind of um, social structures that, um, were impediments for so many people in my family who were just as good as I am or possibly even better than you know myself in terms of the kind of what they had to offer intellectually, um, but never had the opportunities that I had because of certain barriers that were in place. And it was in the, my African-American studies classes that gave me the language, that gave me the kind of resources to be able to interrogate the world around me and to make meaning of it. And I realized that I, I became really interested in pursuing research and my professor, in one of those classes who was an African-American woman. Her name is Eula Taylor. Um, you know, her class on the history of African-Americans during the industrial age just kind of blew me away. And I was like, this, I'm interested in knowing more about what you do, <laughs> right? Um, and I learned that being a professor was more than just teaching in the classroom, but also, you know, had to do with conducting research and producing knowledge. Um, and she was a, she's a historian of black women's history. And she studies the role of black women and the history of black nationalism. And I just became really fascinated with this idea of studying black life and culture and challenging the distortions about black life that are so deeply, deeply embedded in, you know, the kind of school curriculum, but also in the, this canons of knowledge that are at the foundation of higher, even higher education in the US in Europe and beyond, right? Um, and that's really where my journey began. I was like, oh, I, I can finish this business major, but I can also pursue um, in pretty much double majored in African-American studies as well, and decided that I wanted to get a PhD and I applied to graduate school programs in history and African-American studies. And I decided to stay at Berkeley. And it's really one of the best things that I could have ever um, have done. Um, I still love the work that I do. I think it's extremely important. And I'm so grateful to have had teachers who kind of um, helped me understand the importance of thinking about 
um, you know, education in a much more, in, in a broader and more expansive way. Um, and in many ways that teacher, you know, I talked about my college professor, there was multiple black college professors that I had, there were two in particular, and I felt like the relationships that I developed with them was very much so an extension of this much longer history of my relationships that I had with black teachers um, and, the, and the traditions that they were operating within. Um, and that ended up becoming part of a large part of what I'm studying and what I've, you know, what I've written about in this book. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fantastic. I think so for, for a lot of um, African-Americans, but also lots of um, African-Caribbean people in the UK, how did you, how do what, how did you overcome the challenges of being the first person to go to college or to university in your family? You know, were they like, what you're doing? Uh, you know, you just go into corporate world, um, become a lawyer. So, how, you know, how did you, how did you kind of stay the course? Because you know, PhD in America is quite a few years. Yeah, it's a um, so it's a, it was a six year. Uh, my PhD is a six year uh, degree. And I think the average completion time is, was seven years at the time when I got there, but I was able to complete the um, PhD program in six years um, for myself. But honestly, for me, my family had always been very supportive. Okay. Uh, even if they didn't, they, they didn't graduate from high school themselves, but it's not because they didn't value education, despite, you know, contrary to popular belief, you know, there's a lot of um, scholars, even in the U.S., who will think and write about the kind of um, you know, this, this notion that black people, black Americans don't believe in the value of education, or they think that education um, leads to someone quote unquote acting white, if you will, which is completely contrary to this very long tradition of black Americans, right? From the period of enslavement to up and through the, to the contemporary moment, there's a very high value placed on education. And my family always kind of encouraged, encouraged my education and tried to support me in the best ways they can even when they were unfamiliar with so much of the terrain that I was having to navigate, right? Um, and um, so, so for me, it was, uh, you know, the support from my family, uh, but then also I was, you know, just so happened to have attended, I should also say me having all, you know, all black teachers um, or majority and majority black teachers during my formative years is an anomaly. And that's something that I didn't learn until I got to college, that the majority of even the black students at UC Berkeley, many of them had never had a black teacher in their entire life. And that was so foreign to me because from the time I was in preschool, which is something that I started when I was three years old, you know, my first teacher was a, a black woman from, you know, who grew up in Grenada, Mississippi and was born as a sharecropper um, in, in the context of, of the US. Um, and, you know, was working in, in the like working as an agricultural laborer as a sharecropper before she ever even entered a classroom in the 1940s. Um, right, she was um, migrated to California and was the you know my first teacher in preschool. But then every year after that, I pretty much had a black teacher until I got to high school, and I still had majority black teachers, but there was more diversity among the teachers that I had. But it's because it was this very small black uh, independent school that was in Compton that my family decided to send me to that I had that experience, right? Had I gone to the neighborhood schools in Compton, um, it's likely that I would not have had the same experience. Um, there were black teachers there, but nowhere near the kind of the, the number of teachers and certainly not able to kind of operate in the tradition that these teachers that I had were operating within. 
Um, so in terms of me being able to matriculate and go to college, I had, you know, amazing support from my family, despite the lack of material wealth that we had in Compton, California, right? There were so many other resources that I had to draw on in addition to these excellent educators that I had to kind of guide me along the way. And, you know, that I, I see that as part of how I was able to kind of move through and persist through these various different um, phases in my educational trajectory. Fantastic. So I just wanted to pick up on some 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 of the things you said. So uh, unfortunately, in the UK, there's not many black teachers. <laughs> so uh, not in the US either. Over eighty so, over eighty percent of the teachers currently in the US are white. Um, and yeah. we know that is very far. It's a huge mismatch between the student population and between you know the teachers. But um, but I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But it's, there's there's resonance there even. Yeah. So what do you advise? So say, for example, you know, you've got um, someone from the projects or for, in the UK, someone from kind of like a disadvantaged area who, you know, his parents are taking him to the local school and the local school, unfortunately, is, you know, predominantly or 99% white. What advice would you give to that in young person or to a family to say, how bring out the best in them? How can you, how would you say these kids, even in such a circumstance, would be able to persevere like you have, but not with your same, you know, black teachers, but, you know, in a, in a disadvantaged area, maybe poor, maybe um, kind of, you know, the stereotypical image, what, in, what advice would you give them about education and aspiring to be the best? Yeah, so I, I should say, I usually try to kind of resist the um, efforts to kind of offer a prescriptive, idea about this is what you do to kind of help mm -hmm. save black kids in any particular circumstance, right? I can't, I, I don't, there's not a quick rule or anything to say, like, how do you um, put together, what are the ingredients to, I guess, figure out what seems like, what's read as the kind of success of my life mm -hmm. and what me being a professor at Harvard means and what that signals for some folks. But the best things that I can say that I, I understood to be valuable to me in my trajectory was that the, you know, so much of what I received that was valuable in my education and also from the resources that I was able to get from my family was not necessarily the kind of prescriptive aspects that many people associate with good education, right? It wasn't about, you know, teaching me the skills that would allow me to get the best and most uh, competitive kinds of job and things like that. But it was because I felt, felt like I got access to an education that spoke to the, my humanity and to, you know, and to deep, you know, to my spirit in a very important and deep and profound ways, right? So it wasn't a kind of utilitarian approach to education, but I felt like education very early on in my life became a place where I got access to a way of tapping into who I was as a human being and as a person that was very inspiring, that was always very, um, uh, that that helped that was cultivating a kind of self worth in me as a person, mm -hmm. irrespective of what I ended up going out to do, mm -hmm. right? Um, and a lot of that had to do with grounding me in a tradition, right? The school that I went to, so much about what we learned, you know, it wasn't just about the fact that there were, you know, uh, these you know excellent black teachers that we had, but it also had to. So there's nothing innate or intrinsic to black teachers that makes them effective with black students. It has to do with 
the political clarity that they brought to the work in teaching me that helped me understand that things around me in my community um, were, you know, to be able to name the injustice around me, right? Mm -hmm. To know that the circumstances of my life is not because there is something lacking and wrong with my family or me as a person, right? These are these are educators who gave me resources to be able to interrogate the world around me in that way. And that was very, very empowering, right? Um, but they also grounded me in a tradition, right? I learned about the fact that, you know, despite the fact that the world says that black people don't care about education, right? You come from a people who have always been pursuing education and creating educational opportunities despite violent um, and fierce opposition every step of the way, right? And so for me, being having a, a, an identity as a young person who understood my education in relationship to this much longer trajectory and this much longer history, even if I didn't know all the ins and outs, right? of in this date and this time this person did that it was it was an orientation it was a moral orientation to education that um i was given and that, that that helped shape me that i felt like was very important um whether i decided to be a kind of uh, a school teacher whether i decided to take up some sort of trade right whether i decided to kind of go to become a writer or you know or to go to become a lawyer right this was they, they weren't teaching us to say, you need to go to school to be this kind of professional or that. It was an education that um, at its best was one that helped cultivate in me a sense of purpose and worth and commitment to a larger cause that had to do with the people around me and the people that I loved and the people who I understood um, to have loved me as well, right? Mm -hmm. And accountable to that love is what the education was that I got. And so that that's that's the best thing that I feel like I can offer. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's excellent. I think uh, that's a really good segue, looking at the value of education. So, you know, for those of you who do not know already, Jarvis Gavins has written an excellent book. It's called Creative uh, um, Pedagogy. And what's really interesting, there's a part in the book where you talk, and I'm, I would love you to kind of um, expand on this part of the book and before we open up for questions. And it's really building on what you've already said about the value of education. I read this book and you know, when you read a book and you're like, hmm, this, you know, when you want to chew it, you read it, I've underlined it as if it's like a textbook, but I'm just enjoying it. But um, there's a part in the book and I would, I would love you to kind of illustrate and just maybe go into more detail for, for, for the people on, the, on, on our Zoom. Um, they were slaves who risked their lives to get education. So at nighttime, they would escape and go under, go into the woods and, and, teach, and learn to read and write. There, are, there were other people who, um, who risked so much for education. And I think that's what is getting lost in this whole idea of education for performative measures. So as part of your book, can you just kind of illustrate some of these examples of slaves who said, no, 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 education is so valuable, I'll risk my life. And not just risk my life, but also maybe if you can also touch on the, 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 the importance of education in terms of the identity against the idea that black people couldn't read or write. Sorry if that's a long question, but yeah, I, I, I just think, I think it would be really inspiring to share some of these stories. 
Yeah, so I, I appreciate that question because it really gets at a very important tension in the history of African-American education, but this is also a story that's also stretches beyond the U.S. and to certain parts of, um, you know, the kind of uh, West Indies as well, right? When we talk about the history of anti-literacy laws. Um, one of the things that it's important for people to understand to appreciate the story that you're telling is that there were, there were laws passed in the Southern part of the United States where the overwhelming majority of black people were um, and, and enslaved prior to the 1860s. Anti-literacy laws were laws that made it illegal um, for black people enslaved and in some states enslaved or free to learn how to read and write. Um, and you know, the punishment for you know, being found out for this could be um, you know, it could be imprisonment, but it could also be, you know, the law also said, for instance, Virginia says uh, uh, up to 20 lashes, right? Meaning lashes with the whip. Um, and so these laws were important because there was a, what, during the context of slavery, black education and literacy were closely associated with the idea of black rebellion and black resistance, right? The idea that, um, for instance, you know, you'll find newspaper columns in response to some of the slave insurrections that happened, for instance, one in 1831, where, where you have Nat Turner's slave revolt in Southampton, um, Virginia. And you know, some of the newspapers would emphasize that he was a minister and that he knew how to read and write. And then oftentimes it was believed that some of the kind of organizing and um, planning for some of these insurrections, were, you know, the messages were passed using the written word or because they were reading abolitionist literature that instigated these um, these ideas um, and, and these insurrection, these ideas of insurrection in their mind that stimulated this um, discontent, right? Um, but it's important to know that that kind of the criminalizing of Black education is not just, some, you know, it, that's something that actually precedes the, the founding of the United States. The earliest anti-literacy law in the U.S. was established um, in uh, in response to a slave revolt in 1739, right? So the Stono Slave Rebellion of 1739, and then you have the, um, the South Carolina slave code that comes about in 1740, which makes it illegal for, uh, for black folks in South Carolina to learn um, how to write, and particularly write because they were concerned about writing and the sharing and dissemination of, of information. Um, so this is all to say, the stories that you're referring to are black enslaved people who are aware of this ambient anti-literacy ideology that has to do with suppressing black education and suppressing uh, and, and you know, control really has to do with controlling black people, right? It has to do with social control and surveillance, surveilling what kind of information black people are able to take in, so on and so forth, right? Um, but despite all of these measures in the fight, despite the fact that you have people who, you know, would be beaten unmercifully, right, um, near death or would lose a limb or a finger if they're found out to be reading and writing. There's a story of one man, you know, who was uh, as a child was um, found uh, secretly reading from this book and the overseer put acid in his eyes and essentially literally burned out his, his sight, his phys you know, physical sight, um, right? Um, as, as a punishment. So you have these stories all over the place, but despite this kind of intense um, surveillance and repression, you have stories like uh, the story you're referring to in Mississippi 
from a formerly enslaved woman named Mandy Jones who talked about enslaved people on this Mississippi plantation going into the woods at night and climbing into a pit in the ground. Um, and someone who had some learning would teach other slaves how to learn to read and write, right? There's a, the in, one of the most famous stories is about Frederick Douglass, right? Um, Frederick Douglass, who's an internationally known kind of figure in the abolitionist movement, I think his name is recognizable probably to some of the folks listening as well. But in his autobiography, you know, his slave narrative, he talks about this moment when his master's wife is attempting to teach him his letters and how to read and write as a young child. And when his master sees this, he like, he essentially scolds his wife, says like, what are you doing? He says, this will ruin a slave, right? Um, and, and, and Douglas recounts this, this kind of long rant that his master goes on and said, if you teach him now, um, you know, if you teach him now to, this will make him discontent. If you teach him to read, he'll want to know to write. And this accomplished, he'll be running away with himself, right? So this idea of literacy um, and access to knowledge being something that kind of instigates this desire for Black rebellion and Black enslaved people to kind of escape, right? So you'll see these, you'll see slave narratives. I'm not slave narratives, but these fugitive slave ads, right? That will say, you know, um, Henry is, you know, an, ens an enslaved man of this height, right? Of, they'll say very dark skin, scar on the side of his face. He might be carrying a pass because he's suspected to have, um, to, to know, it's suspected that he knows how to write, right? So he might have uh, a, a forged pass or something like that. So literally in the archive, you'll see the way in which literacy and black rebellion and black resistance are always bound up together in the context of the US, right? And that's the story of black education and the politics of black education that I'm drawing on to talk about this tradition that you're, that, that you're encountering in the book that I wrote. Yeah, and so I just wanted to highlight for everyone, especially when you have like young black men, people who don't believe in the value of education. People like, like um, professor, the professor has just said, people were willing to risk their lives despite the challenges to educate themselves, not just as a means of accumulating education, but as a reaction to understanding what it meant for black identity to be free and to show black intelligence. Yeah, can I add something to what you just said there? Oh yes, please. Um, and it's not even that, you know, that we have young people that don't value education because I think one of the things that we have to help um, young people know is that there, you know, there might be a rejection of the dominant modes of education that are being offered to black people because there's much that's, that, that should be rejected and that should be refused um, in terms of the kind of, you know, the, the, when we think about the experience of black students, whether it be in the US context or in the UK context, right? There's so much about the, the way education systems have been structured and the alienation and the estrangement that kind of black students can experience. So there's something righteous about um, some level of resistance that black people might have to education. But one of the things that's important is to make sure that we are offering young black folks resources to understand that there is a counter educational tradition that, that can help them navigate educational structures with a different set of principles, a different um, set of commitments and kind of immoral imperatives that are, that are often in tension, in tension and in conflict with the dominant structures of schools 
that they find themselves rejecting, right? Um, that there are, there are strategies and there are traditions that they can build on to think about that um, and, and as they're crafting their own educational identities and thinking about what a meaningful education means for them and their life based on their circumstances. Because oftentimes there is a, uh, this, there, there, is, there are tensions between those things. And it's important that we don't write off young, you know, black folks as, as saying that they just don't value um, education. Because one of the things that I know is that, you know, like most folks around the world, you know, as human beings that are, you know, steeped in a, in culture and, and, and desire and, and who desire human flourishing, right. Enlightenment and the pursuit of education is something that is valued. Um, but based on, you know, certain contexts that we might find ourselves in and what's deemed as ideal education and the model of education may kind of result in this kind of rejection um, that, that, that you're naming. And I think it's important for us to kind of be, be clear about that, right? And not um, place the full onus on those students themselves. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. So this is gonna be my last question before we open it up to, for questions. And just whilst everyone's kind of taking in this uh, the conversation, I just want to say that we are offering, um, so I will mail anyone who, well, the best question well, all the best questions, they will get a free copy of this book. Well, I'm offering two copies, so there's two, there's two opportunities. Hopefully we can have a, a winner in America and also an American uh, winner in the UK. But before we get into the questions, the last question for me, especially on your last point is, um, when you say challenging, when you talk about challenging um, the dominant narratives, narratives that are toxic about black people and black education and black kind of identity, um, you know, um, as you know, you know, <laughs> when you're surrounded by a lot of white people, it's very difficult to kind of be Wakanda about it. And um, what I love about your book, I don't know if you want to maybe touch on just how you're able to look like you're playing the part, but actually underneath the surface, like, you know, I think this is a, the, the, there's a teacher example in your book or something that you mentioned about how you can play the part. So you, it seems to, you know, the majority that you're complicit in this uh, madness, but actually be below the surface, you are actually subverting the system in very clever, but powerful ways. So I don't know if you wanna um, yeah. touch on that before we open up for questions. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that question. I'm assuming you're referring to the kind of opening scenario in the book where there's a teacher, her name is Tessie McGee, and uh, she's, she's in a classroom, this is a high school classroom or the equivalent of a high school classroom in a rural school in uh, Louisiana. And um, this is from a student account, but he talks about the teacher secretly reading from Carter G. Woodson's textbook. And Carter G. Woodson is the central figure in the book. Um, Carter G. Woodson is the child, of, is the child and student of former slaves, um, but he published textbooks and de developed curricular resources to support black teachers. And he's also the person who founded black, what we know as Black History Month, right? So in 1926, he created Negro History Week that becomes Black History Month. And I know there's a Black History Month in the UK as well. And there's actually some early correspondences between Woodson and a number of scholars that are, you know, in various places, including um, the UK, right, in terms of this intellectual exchange across the Atlantic, that's important to think about there. But long story short, Tessie McGee is in the context of a Jim Crow school. 
She has a formal curriculum that she's supposed to follow, but her students recalled how she would often secretly read from this textbook by Carter G. Woodson that she kept um, in her lap underneath the desk. The title of this book is The Negro in Our History. Um, the student talks about when someone came into their classroom, she stopped reading from this book and would then proceed to read from the required curriculum. Someone left and then the student says her eyes went back to the book in her lap. Um, that idea, that, that embodied in physical negotiation of power, that subversion is what I'm talking about when I write about fugitive pedagogy, right? This kind of, these kind of escape practices and these um, concealed practices that black fo folks were engaging in from the period of enslavement in terms of, you know, secretly sneaking off, stealing away to the woods at night to have a school um, through clandestine means um, to this teacher who's reading from a textbook that is written by a black school teacher that was banned in certain places in uh, the US during this time period, right? There are stories of teachers being found out using this book and who are fired and who are threatened and forced to resign. And there's at least one case I'm thinking about in Oklahoma. Um, but that's the, those are the kinds of things that I was interested in, in writing about, right? Because many of these black teachers who some people, some historians have talked about as kind of complicit in the Jim Crow school structure because they just wanted to maintain their jobs. And it's like, well, no, that's a very limiting, that's a very thin way of understanding the deeper um, kind of relations of power that are embedded in the context of American schools and that black people were having to navigate, right? These are people who are making decisions about how they engage in resistance and strategically what makes the most sense to both serve the needs of their students, but also to navigate and subvert these hostile school structures that they're having to work within. Sometimes that meant doing certain things um, in secret, right? That had always been the case for Black Americans, um, right? It's this, I, I think you're referring to this idea of, um, so Paul Lawrence Dunbar is a poet and he has a poem called, We Wear the Mask, right? And so I, I, I use that language from Paul Lawrence Dunbar to talk about these teachers of how they performed compliance in the presence of white authoritative power um, during the context of slavery and Jim Crow. But when left to their own devices, how they were offering black students, people like Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, right? John Lewis, so many of the civil rights leaders in the US that many people recognize as resisting and pushing for civil rights, these people didn't fall out of the sky. These were people who were the former students of black teachers who were exposed to a very rich tradition of resistance that they then went out and enacted in the world, right? Um, and that's not something that was, you know, this is something that took on very distinct meaning in the lives of these teachers that I'm writing about in the book. But it's something that extends from a pop, black people's politics um, that developed in the time of slavery whether we think about secret black religious worship, right? Um, we think well, some scholars have written about as the invisible institution with black people going into the woods to have their own forms of religious ceremony and, um, and services in the context of slavery, right? That is very much so a part of the resistance efforts of uh, slave insurrections and also the building of schools that came after, right? That's an extension of those secret escape practices that black folks employed during the period of slavery. There's another saying that I would just share here as an ending, um, you know, that also comes from enslaved people uh, in the US that's passed down and it's, it's, I got one mind for me and another for the master to see, right? Mm -hmm. right? 
idea of kind of, um, you know, navigating power by showing up in multiple different ways to best serve the kind of higher aims of your work and your political mission is something that Black people have always had to make decisions about. And it's at the center of the story of Black education. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, there's not much I can add to that. I, I, you know, I, I encourage everyone to get the Spotify uh, podcast. This is this is juicy. But on that note, I just wanted to say also that, you know, uh, you know, I echo the words of um, uh, Professor um, Connell West, uh, quite a prominent um, professor in Harvard and in America. Most people, some some people may know him, but he was speaking at. Uh, a, a graduation ceremony. So in, in Harvard, they have a ceremony just for uh, all the students who are of black and ethnic, no, black students. I think it's called the, can you help me out? I think it's called, so I think it's, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a graduation specifically for all the students who graduate from Harvard who are black. And he was giving advice to the students and um, to the students who have just graduated. And he said, don't see Harvard as the goal, use it as a platform to do what you want to do. And in just in, in echoing what you've just said is using your position to influence rather than the position to influence you completely. And it kind of echoes on what you said. So thank you so much for answering some of my questions. I'm now going to open it up for questions from, uh, from our audience. Please, um, if you can unmute before your question i'll try and kind of navigate the questions as best as i can but i um like i said and there's a prize going so there's two prizes and the book is literally i think it's you know christmas come earlier you know i love it so um we will be you know just as after the after, after the zoom i'll take your details and we'll be sending that across so i'm going to open up for questions so anyone who's eager to answer questions please fire away um Try to keep the questions brief, but um, just unmute yourself uh, and, and, and fire with your questions and I'll try and um, regulate it. So we have a question already from, and I think I know from Ohio State, um, Adrian, what's your question? Yeah, hi there. Um, and this may be beyond the scope of your work, so please you know, uh, direct me as you shall. Um, just interested in how we reconcile this I don't know if you would call it this, but how you reconcile this celebration of fugitivity with the fact that it shouldn't have to be this way, right? Like we started using these subject subversive acts because we were being excluded. So how do you reconcile this celebration and this recognition of this rich culture that we come from with, it also shouldn't have to be this way? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Um, and it's one that I tried to be very clear about in the book is that the book is not one where I'm trying to be overly triumphant, right? Because I think that's been one of the limitations of a lot of the scholarship on Black life and particularly Black education in general is that, um, you know, I didn't want it to be a story of like, you know, complete triumph is like, you know, and the language of fugitivity is useful for me in that way is because the, you know, to borrow from Fred Moten, escape is an activity, it's not an achievement, right? Because there's always the perpetual, this lurking, this looming threat of recapture, both for the fugitive slave that I write about or those who were engaging in fugitive literary, literary practices during slavery who were secretly learning to read and write, right? The fact that they could always be found out is something that's important. Why it's useful is that the language of fugitivity holds both of those things in tension, 
we can take seriously the agency of black people. And we can also talk about the persistent violence that is also there. And I think for me, that's, that's, a, that's a more tr a closer to a more truthful way of representing black life and black experiences and the history that I wanted to write about. Um, so, so the book is trying to take seriously the violence that black people experienced in education, but at the same time, not reduce it to that, to say that there is something beautiful and important in these resources and the ways that black people navigated power that helped to kind of transmit a tradition that helped sustain black life in the US and that also helped to offer young people the resources to continue in a tradition of resistance that um, demanded that, you know, that demanded that the world um, see them in their full humanity, right? And I think that it's important um, to, to do that where it's in, both of those things are held in tension, both this story of resistance, but also this story of violence um, that, is, that is there. And, and it's not that I'm interested in kind of celebrating that or to celebrate the suffering that is a part of that story, but I want to allow the suffering to speak through the work, but I also wanna make sure that we're not reducing black people and our history to only that suffering, right? Because there is something mm -hmm. very important um, that we can't lose sight of about a people who had literally nothing after mm -hmm. the material after the period of enslavement. And the first thing that they did was to build schools, right? Mm -hmm. um, there would be no public education in the South. In all the Southern states, the Southern states in the United States, the first public education system came from the campaign waged by formerly enslaved people because they had a vision of education um, that, that compelled them to make that their first act of freedom, right? And it's from that tradition that I'm just trying to pull out and write about, um, but it's not a narrative that I wanna be overly triumphant about. Um, so I appreciate you for inviting me to, to say more about that. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Adrian, as well um, for the question. Uh, are there any other questions? It looks like someone named Archie, Archie wrote in the chat that they would like to ask a question. Oh, okay. Yes, um, if you can, un is your mic working? If you can unmute your mic, um, we're happy to take your question. Are, are you able to ask your question? Are or if they wanted to share it in the chat, there's also that option. Yeah, yeah, so if you, yeah, so, or you can message me or, or, or sure, write it in the chat. Um, whilst we're, um, looking at that, uh, sorting out that question. Um, is there anybody else who would like to ask a question? Okay, I don't, I'm not sure if that was a question, but <laughs> um, yeah, so does any, um, so, um, so whilst we're waiting for some more questions, I'm just wondering for, on a practical level, um, I know you've mentioned it previously and I'm, I'm stealing someone's question, but you know, it is what it is. Um, do you have any practical resources that I could give young people or that you would recommend that young people would look at? You know, you had this transformative experience looking at, you know, um, when you were at your undergrad or I think it was your master's, uh, you know, the African-American um, literature that you looked at or, you know, is there any resources or anything that you would recommend that I could give to a young person or to anyone to kind of say, look, look what's out here, look at the deeper tradition that we come from to encourage them? Um, well, I, I think that, you know, part of the, and I see that there's another question um, that just came in there, but I think one of the things is just what you said. I think that it's important for uh, our, uh, in our communities and, and across, you know, and I'm saying communities because I understand that we're talking about Black people's experiences in education and there are, um, 
there's diversity even within that experience when we're talking about across various different ethnic groups in various different national contexts. Um, but I think that there's a lot of resonance across those experiences um, that, that is important to draw on. But one thing that I would say is I, I think that it's actually very important to translate these traditions that I'm writing about in the US context, or even if we were to think about in the UK context, right, the history of the black supplementary school movement. I, I don't know, I, don't, I think it's actually important for students to recognize that there is a counter educational tradition that they can look to in terms of thinking about their own you know, academic identities. And I was lucky to get that because I had teachers who were operating in that tradition who made that explicit for me. But I know for a fact that the overwhelming majority of, you know, you know, even black students in the US and even many black teachers in the US are not familiar with this history, right? And, and, and the history is important not only because, oh, this is what we did then, but history are our points of reference. They frame our, our academic and our professional identities. And when we don't have this kind of historical frames and traditions to stand on, right? You know, we're kind of left to make the most of the resources that are available to us through the kind of dominant educational system, which oftentimes are, um, you know, are, are not necessarily, are, are inconsistent with the needs of our lives and the, the communities that we come from. Um, so, you know, that, that's one of the things that I would say is I actually think that it's very, we can't underestimate what it means to hand this tradition over to young people for them to be able to engage with it at a very, you know, very early on. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have to read my book, but there are other ways to expose young people to this history to understand the deeper meanings of education, right? And those deeper meanings for education for, you know, Black folks, uh, you know, oftentimes looks, looks very different, right? In terms of, it might have different meaning than what it has for other groups, right? Based on the local context, the history of that, of, you know, of black folks in the context of London, the UK, or, you know, if I think about, you know, the Afro-Dutch community in Amsterdam, I was talking with some folks learning some very um, interesting dynamics about the experience of the Afro-Dutch community in the Netherlands. And, you know, despite the kind of, you know, linguistic differences and kind of very different histories and stuff, there's so much resonance right, in terms of the way anti-Blackness cuts across these contexts and the similar ways that Black people have had to resist um, the way anti-Blackness uh, shows up and manifests in educational contexts. Um, and I think that that's something we have to be explicit with young people about um, in the ways that are developmentally appropriate. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So we have a question, so I'm, gonna, I'm not, I'm, well, I'll try not to ask any more questions. Um, so we've got a question from Pamela saying um how do we practically how do we practically get more representation in academia and particularly senior academic positions yeah i think that that is very important and a lot of that um that's it's a <laughs> question i think it might depend on like what strategies might look like from one context to the next but one of the things that i know that's important is that it's important for people for for educators to organize educators who are committed to these kinds of um, to, to rectifying and challenging these kinds of you know the low representation of black teachers or educators have to you know become organized to kind of address and champion and champion those 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 issues right I think about this in, in the story of this book is that you know I write about that one teacher Tessie McGee 
But one of the things I've also tried to emphasize are these professional networks that Black teachers created that, you know, that they started created, creating even before the emancipation of enslaved people, right? Um, in, 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 to in total, right? So this, the earliest Black Teacher Association is created in the 1860s, in 1861 in the US. And those teacher associations became very, very important for advocating on behalf of Black teachers, right? And I think the same thing will probably apply when we think about um, professors and educators in higher education, is that it's important that the few Black professors that are there don't operate in isolation as an individual professor, but if you're advocating and championing a cause, there should be organizations to advocate on behalf of that cause, right? That, um, that is important for kind of protecting individual, uh, you know, professors who might receive backlash for, you know, pushing these issues, right? And that's, that's the reason that this kind of collective effort is important. And I would say one of the things, there are different kinds of strategies that I think of in the US, for instance, I was a part of a fellowship program called the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program, which was intentionally created to try to create a pipeline for underrepresented students, and particularly we're thinking about blacks, you know, black scholars to have a trajectory into the professoriate. Right. Um, over the kind of past few decades, that pipeline has been essential for identifying students in the undergraduate level, providing resources for them to kind of get support for applying to graduate school and persisting through graduate school into the ranks of like a tenure track faculty member. And in the absence of those kinds of intentional structures, it can be very difficult for, um, you know, um, you know, scholars who have the interests, right, and who have the so much to offer to the academy, um, it can be very difficult to figure out how one goes about navigating those structures, because for so long, um, you know, folks from the communities that we represent have been blocked out and have been, um, there's been all sorts of impediments for us gaining access to those, um, to those opportunities, right? So that kind of organizing work cannot be overstated. Um, and I think that that's something, that's one of the, that's one of the practical things that I would offer um, for thinking about that. Um, yeah. You know, I, th I think that's fantastic. And like, um, so for those in the USA, there's also the PhD project, which is a st structured program from undergraduate to try and help more black people to get into academia. For those in the UK, there's a, a relatively new initiative at the University College of London, which is Black in Academia. And they're really pushing young people from undergraduate to kind of have a network and organized, like you said, organized network and structured program to actually start to aspire, have mentors, but also understand what is the process of, of, of getting into academia. So no, I couldn't agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. I would say, I would say one of the, I know one of the, um, another resource that might be worth, and I don't know if they do the work of kind of, um, of trying to kind of recruit and retain more black professors, but I think that's absolutely implicitly a part of the mission, but the summer school on black Europe or, or the black Europe summer school that's held annually every summer in Amsterdam. I know that uh, professor Kwame Namako is the person that heads that up. I know Stephen Small, uh, who's originally from Liverpool, but is a sociologist professor at the University of California, Berkeley, one of my undergraduate and graduate professors is also a faculty member uh, affiliated with the Black Europe Summer School that they've been holding for, I know, well over 10 years at this point. It's not a huge summer school and they have to do it out. They, 
had to do it outside of university, but all of the faculty associated with it are, universe, are university professors from various different places. And I attended that um, when I was in graduate school um, one summer, and it was a very, it was a, you know, a very important and impactful experience for me to think about the kind of the global dimensions to both the um, the kind of domination that Black people have experienced in education, you know, in the kind of primary and secondary level, but also in higher education where knowledge is produced, right? Mm -hmm. But then also this summer school as a, a part of this very long tradition of educational resistance by Black scholars um, in terms of their resistance and critiques of anti-Blackness in the academy, right? And I think that that um, summer school is something that folks in the in the UK and beyond, in, you know, in different countries in Europe might look to as, you know, a place for building, uh, you know, at least checking out, right, is what I would say. Mm -hmm. I, I, what I'm trying to say is that that kind of organizing and institution building to support this kind of work is, is very important. And we can't always rely on these kind of larger ins mainstream institutions to do that work for us because unfortunately it's not always a priority for them un until it's made a priority um, and even make forcing them to kind of um, keep maintain a commitment to, to that priority of diversifying the professoriate is also itself a challenge, right? Once yeah. they make a formal commitment to it, then one or two years later, it's, it's questionable whether or not that commitment is still there yeah. when it's not something that, popular in the news cycle, right? Which is why organizations are important. And that's something I tried to emphasize um, in my book because that's important even for teachers in the primary and secondary school level, black educators in the primary and secondary school level as well, that's important. Yes, fant absolutely fantastic. I think we have one more question. I think Nat, Nat, do you have a question? Nat. Yeah, I, oh, I did see a direct, I got a message. So if it's, this is from Nat B. The question okay, was, yes, yeah. I see some of the fugitive behavior still happening in America today. And I would say, apps, I, I do, I would say that there are, that the tradition that I write about definitely manifest in um, the context of the US today by a number of teachers, I'm sure, who choose to put the interests of their students above the kind of bureaucratic demands of, the school structures that they're operating within and to do what they understand to be best and in, in the best needs of students. Um, but one of the things that I will say is that it's nowhere near on the scale that we um, see in this historical context that I'm writing about, largely because many of the organizations that cultivated this professional disposition among black teachers were kind of gutted and, inter and integrated out of existence in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And so like the black teacher associations that I write about, um, were forced to dismantle themselves at the same time that desegregation was kind of rolling out in the US. And as we see, saw the, a massive firing of black teachers um, and, and the kind of systematic demotion of black, you know, black educational leaders in the forms of administrative positions and things like that. You know, as this formally, as the formerly, uh, you know, Jim Crow segregated black schools were then merging into supposedly merging, right? It was a very halfway integration um, program. But in that process, black teachers and the organizations that they created were undermined in that process, um, which unfortunately, ironically, or tragically, we should say, it was these very institutions and, and teachers who actually secretly 
funneled the money to the lawyers and the NAACP and the civil rights activists who led the litigation campaigns to actually push for desegregation, right? They were undermined in what came after. Um, and the institutions that advocated on their behalf were dismantled um, in what came after, right? Um, but so that's what I say in terms of the scale, we don't see it, but there are absolutely individual teachers, I would say that I've encountered, that I've met who operate in, this, in the best of this tradition. Fantastic. Uh, I think we have a question from Pamela. Yeah, we have a question from Pamela. Thank you, Richard. Professor Givens, thank you for um, eloquently taking us through this topic. Um, so I agree with you that as a community, the African Caribbean community, we have a high education ethic and we have a high value on education. The challenge then is how we translate that into practice. And I recall a conversation I had with a younger friend when I was preparing for my Viva She'd never heard of Viva, and then she said, I didn't know people like us did those kind of things. Where, what, what do you see as your responsibility, having got to where you are, in terms of tackling that disparity between the ethic, the, the actual educational ethic and the value, and what is actually happening on the ground? Well, I, I think part of it has to do with um, creating more opportunities for young people to learn about that. I didn't know what a professor, even as I had, you know, I didn't see very many black professors myself, right? When I, or any at all, really, when I, when I think about it, when I was growing up um, and it wasn't one of the kind of, you know, career paths that I was really exposed to as something that would be viable, that it wasn't in my mind that you go, you can go to college to become a professor, right? Um, it was either you go to college, become a lawyer um, or become a doctor or something like that. <laughs> or maybe become a minister, right? If I think about the community that I come from, part of that has to do with this, you know, the fact that um, in certain communities, there's such a limited number of, uh, you know, of kind of frames, right? For young people to kind of see these different career trajectories and pathways. And I think that it's important for us to have more expansive conversations with folks in our communities about you know, the, the range of things that are possible for them, you know, mm -hmm. to, um, and this is not just in a kind of a career, um, you know, a, what do you call those things, a career day kind of forum, but, you know, I, I think those conversations naturally grow out of deep, serious engagement with young people about injustice in the world, right, and from that conversation about what we need to do and the kind of people we need and the kind of resources and skills that we need, to combat this injustice in the world, right? And certainly when you have those sorts of conversations, you have to talk about education and the kind of process of knowledge production within that. And students have to know that so much of the injustice around us has been framed and has been facilitated by the ideas that come from people who are professors, scholars that influence the minds of people who shape policy and practices in the world, right? And that naturally leads to a question, well, who are the people that create this knowledge and these ideas that do this work? Right? And those that that kind of exposure is something that should really be coming um, that that students should be meeting in the context of education, whether that be formally in school or in the kind of communal education spaces that we have. Um, and so I just think that if we, you know, we have to find intentional ways to build that into our um, the networks within our communities. Is that those that kind of exposure has to be something that we are intentional about um, and that we prioritize. Uh, that, that's, that's the only 
and, and I don't think that that's something that can really just come from a top-down level. These are things that we have to do through building and organizing from the kind of, you know, that should kind of emerge from the people themselves and that it is the responsibility of folks like myself. And I see that as my responsibility. And I try to do that as much as possible, whether that's partnering with local educators or the kind of black owned bookstore that's in my local community here to try to engage in these conversations, you know, outside of the university. Mm -hmm. um, because oftentimes there are a lot of people who need to know this that are not at Harvard or that were not at UC Berkeley when I was there. And mm -hmm. luckily for me, I always have models of professors who did that. I um, mm -hmm. can't say that, unfortunately, they were, there were far too few of them, right? Um, but um, I do think that that's a model that we have to look to and think about how we build on. Okay, thank you so much. We have a question from NYC. Uh, Jason, we have a question from Jason uh, in New York City. How can black educators and teachers handle systematic racism in academia? That's a big question. <laughs> it's NYC. <laughs> I think that's a big question. I would say in large part, I think, I would say, so mm. part of the, my response is an assortment of things that I've said thus far. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's like a one kind of, you know, trick to any of these things. I think that it has to do, you know, so much of it has to do with kind of organizing and creating the networks that are prioritizing these issues that we see. And they have to be led by the people who are in the struggle trying to resist and do that work, right? Um, and so I, I, I'm saying, so if there are child, these are sorts of challenges that black educators are experiencing. And I know that there are many challenges that black educators are experiencing. And I'm talking about teachers, particularly in the K through, in the K through 12 level in the US. Um, I, I'm hoping that the stories in this book that I just wrote about the organizing that the teachers, that these teachers during the period of slavery and through Jim Crow, the way that they organized to resist these structures that many of us could not even we, we couldn't even really fathom the kind of repression and persecution these folks were living under, you know, and this is not to minimize the kind of challenges that we experience today um, as, as Black folks, but I do think that it's, you know, we don't experience the suffering of our ancestors in full, right? And if they were able to build these institutions to advocate in these fierce ways on their behalf, then I think we have to pick up the resources that they left behind and the models that we have and refine them and reconfigure them in the ways that best suit our contemporary needs. Um, and so that, 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 that's what I would say. I think that some of the strategies are the things that our folks have been doing for a long period of time. And we, have, we can't lose sight of the, the value of that kind of organizing and, and, collective, um, and collective building, right? Mm -hmm. To support the needs of, you know, these are individual teachers' experiences in different places, but you know the estrangement that black teachers experience in the U.S. in these various different schools, where they may be the only black teacher or one of a small number of black teacher, right? Um, it's it's pretty common, and I think that that says that there is a need for a kind of professional institution building to support black educators um, to in terms of recruiting more black educators to diversify the education profession, but also there's work that needs to be done to sustain black educators because many of them leave the profession because of the experiences that they have and the lack of resources to support their needs um, in, in the profession. And I think that, you know, the, um, 
there's lots of opportunities to build um, in, in that way and to build in the ways that these educators before us, um, you know, the way that they went about building. Exactly. And I, I think it's all about having a safe space. So does anyone have any burning questions before I announce the winner and um, say um, thank you to um, Professor Givings? Does anyone have any burning questions? Sorry, is that a question? Okay. Ooh. This is all. Uh, this is from another question. Okay, so we have. Oh, it's a, it's a it's a big one. It's a big one, sir. I think the most challenging issue for educators is to change the mindset of people who have been racially biased and stereotypes. How can we solve this problem in a practical way? Yeah, I mean, I think is that asking a question about how do we change the minds of people who kind of harbor certain kind of racist ideas or, you know, who kind of have internalized and function on on those kind of racist ideas? Um, that's what it looks like. Yeah, that, I think that's what a question, but happy to, uh, if you can come on off, off mute to explain, uh, that would be fantastic. But uh, I think that's how, that's how I see the question. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak beyond my area of expertise. That's not, that's not necessarily what I study. I do know that there's a lot of work around efforts around anti-racist teaching in the context of the U.S. and to try to do that. And a lot of that has to do with trying to teach white people in the U.S. about what it means to take seriously the history of racial oppression and the, kind, the way in which that has afforded opportunities to certain groups to end that opportunity that has accumulated over generations from certain groups and the way that those accumulated opportunities and hoarding of opportunities for certain groups is directly tied to the kind of um, barriers and, um, and resistance to allowing other groups to have access to certain opportunities and, and the effects mm -hmm. that have had over the course of generations. And to, to, to force people to seriously reckon with that, um, is something that you know people are talking about with anti-racist teaching, but I do know that it's a very um, that's work that you have to be that that some people are really cut out for and are interested in doing. That has not necessarily been my calling. You know, my calling is to study and think deeply about the traditions of Black people and how they have worked to um, to help themselves and their communities to see things with more clarity um, in terms of where we have been, where we're at, and the things that we need to do and to kind of build on in order to kind mm -hmm. of navigate the terrain that lies ahead, right? Um, and, 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 and so, so that, that's the place that I'm speaking from, right? So in terms of the practical thing, in terms of how do we convince uh, nations uh, and, and groups of people who are invested in maintaining um, the status quo is, is it's, it's something that is that is difficult for me to answer because I'm also uh, aware that there are a lot of people who might be familiar and, and very well studied on lots of this history and are not particularly interested in um, giving up or make or, or, or challenging the kind of accumulated opportunities that they've amassed to the detriment of other communities. And that's some that's a real kind of human conflict that we're having to deal with in the current moment across the, you know, across the, the world, right? Whether that's the United States and thinking about how the kind of wealth 
and accumulated privilege of certain people is, is you can't, you can, you literally can kind of trace it through the kind of economic development of the nation and its relationship to the genocide of native communities, right? And, and forced and, and the theft of native land, but also the exploitation of enslaved black labor, the same way that so all European countries cannot escape the fact that their kind of modern uh, you know, position in the world was accumulated through so much of the kind of theft and plunder that had to do with the, you know, their development was contingent on the underdevelopment of so much of the rest of the world, right? And the peoples who come from those places. And until people are really seriously able to kind of think and contend with that, um, and to think about how our, it's lived consequences in our individual lives, whether that be in terms of the kind of, uh, the, 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 the generations of deprivation that certain communities have to contend with and, and, and live with and figure out how to navigate and how other people um, have kind of accumulated certain kinds of privileges that they continue to benefit from and that continue to shape how they are able to show up and move through the world. Um, you know, I, that's, that's a fundamental kind of human conflict that we're dealing with in, in the world. And particularly when we're talking about, um, if we're, from the kind of black perspective, when we're thinking about the history of, in, of you know, enslavement and the building of the modern world and, what, and all that we're dealing with in, t in its aftermath. Um, so that's what I would say that's talking around the question, but it's because you know, what's being asked there is something that is, uh, it's a very, very big question. And at the heart of the question, I understand it to be, how do you convince people who are in the positions of privilege who have accumulated and who benefit from so much of the kind of suffering that many people, particularly black folks, and other racialized communities experience, how do you get them to kind of come around? And I think that that's a question that many people have been asking for a long period of time, whether it be abolitionists who are trying to convince people who literally own other people that, um, that you know, that there's, that, that, that's, that compromises the very fundamentals of what it means to be human and how we might think, think higher of ourselves as a species, right? This is the same kind of, in a new form, is kind of a new iteration of that same historical conflict that we're having to deal with um, when it comes to the way that race and racism uh, intrudes and kind of, um, you know, really uh, uh, kind of functions as this kind of toxic thing that uh, continues to proliferate in the web of social networks that we live in as human beings in various parts of the world. And, you know, the best thing that I can do is I'm trying to write about the, what black people have been doing to navigate that and to hold on to their human dignity and self-worth and to offer that as a resource for black people today to, um, to, to think with and build with as they navigate that. And as they continue to try to address these external conflicts as well, right? Um, but yeah. Uh, thank you so much for that. Like you said, it's a complex one that is that we could talk about forever because it's so complex. But um, on that note, because of time, I won't uh, take any more questions. But I would like to just just to, just to tease you with the end of um, one of the qu questions. It says, um, and I think this is probably um, what I believe about your book. It, um, it says, "This will be our legacy to the world to enrich humanity." 
you know, I think your book will inspire lots of young people, lots of teachers, and hopefully everyone on this call to kind of see value education in a very different way, but also also to kind of understand different strategies to use power structure to our greater good and to our benefit. So thank you so much for dedicating yourself to um, this work. The work is fantastic. I have it here. I love it. If you haven't already got it, it's um, on Amazon, um, free to pedagogy.